I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Thomas Jones, host of the LRB podcast. This year on our Close Readings podcast, there'll be two bonus series, one with Seamus Perry and Mark Ford looking at political poems, and one with Irina Dimitrescu and Mary Wellesley investigating medieval humour. You can listen to Mary and Irina's first episode on Chaucer's Miller's Tale here now, or go straight over to the LRB Close Readings podcast, where you'll be able to listen to the full series as it's released through the year, as well as Seamus and Mark's new series starting later this month. You'll also find extracts from our three subscriber series running this year. Just search for LRB Close Readings in your podcast app or find links in the description. Hello and welcome to Medieval Lols, a new podcast series from the London Review of Books. I'm Irina Dumitrescu. And I'm Mary Wellesley. And we are both writers, literary historians, and contributors to the paper. In this series, we are asking, was the Middle Ages funny? We're taking a tour through texts both familiar and unfamiliar in English, Latin, and other European vernacular languages, and hunting for laughter and jest in the textual remains of the past. It isn't all joy, though, for many medieval writers used comedy for serious purposes, to call out social, political, or spiritual wrongs. And of course, humor is not timeless. The racism and sexism of our medieval predecessors now hurts rather than amuses. But there's still plenty to delight in. Naughty students, scheming monks, gossiping wives, bums in windows, phallic jokes, and more farts than you can shake a stick at. Today we're talking about one of the best-known comic tales of the Middle Ages. A story that's an exploration of authority, of belief, of learning, and of why you shouldn't put your butt out a window. I am speaking, of course, about Chaucer's Miller's Tale. Mary, tell us a little bit about this story. Where can we place it? What are we? What are the basics? So uh, Chaucer's Miller's Tale, um, as most people will know, comes from the Canterbury Tales, which is Chaucer's unfinished magnum opus, which he wrote um, towards the end of his life. We think he died in about 1400. So it's from the sort of you know, probably the decade before that. It's this story about um, a group of pilgrims who are traveling from from Southwark, just outside London, and going to Canterbury, and they meet on the way, and they decide that they're each going to tell a story on the journey there and a story on the way home to entertain the the amassed company. And unfortunately, uh, it's unfinished. Not all the pilgrims tell tales and those that do only tell one. So we only get part of the journey there and we don't hear what happens when they eventually arrive. A lot of the kind of engine and the drama and the comedy of this text is about the slippage between the teller and the tale. And it's one of the things that's kind of most delightful that Chaucer is really playing with all the time in quite a knowing way that a lot of your expectations as a reader or a listener about the kind of story you're about to hear, a lot of those expectations are disrupted. 
at the beginning of the poem, we have what's been editorially titled the general prologue, in which we are introduced to each of these characters. And so we've already got a sense of who all of these pilgrims are. And that, of course, colours our interpretation of the story that's subsequently told. Now, The Miller's Tale, because this work is unfinished and most likely every single one of the surviving manuscripts, of which there are many, some estimates about 98 if you're including some of the fragmentary ones, all of those manuscripts appear to date from the period after Chaucer had died. And so this this text is very much a kind of construction of 15th century scribes who who took this kind of a bit of a sort of spaghetti of a text and tried to sort of put it together. And as a result, the ordering is different in many different manuscripts. But in some manuscripts, not all of them, in some, the Miller's Tale appears right after the Knight's Tale. Now, the knight is the most noble character on this journey, on this pilgrimage, and he think it's fair to say, maybe you disagree with me, Irina, tells us a slightly boring story. A little um, bit, yeah. yeah. And so already there's kind of a bit of a joke in there already that Chaucer's sort of telling you that you might expect that this most noble character is going to tell the best story, and in fact, doesn't. And so then we have enter stage left, the miller, and it's a riotous entrance um, because the, the miller is, is obviously drunk. Um, he's interrupting the, the host, who's this kind of um, figure who's kind of overseeing proceedings on, on the journey. And he says that he wants to tell this tell this tale. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about what the story is. I mean, it's a complex story, but what's the core? What, what do our listeners need to know? Okay, so it's a story about a man who is a carpenter who lives just outside Oxford. And he, he has in his house a lodger who's a clerk, so for which read kind of student. He's an Oxford student, right? And um, this carpenter has a hot young wife called Alison. Um, and we'll get to this in a bit, but, but the description of her is really kind of wonderful. But he is this, this quite kind of familiar character from um, medieval literature. He's the, the, he's the sort of uxorious, overprotective older husband who has this beautiful young wife who he keeps um, kind of impliedly in a little bit of a cage. And there's there are all of these moments when Alison is compared to various different animals. And we sort of get the sense that he he treats her a bit like a kind of domestic animal. You know, there's this kind of creature that he can use, make use of and keep contained within the within his home. And the clerk is very much in love with Alison. Well, is he in love or in lust, Mary? Thank you, Irina. That that is a that is a misrepresentation of the story. He is indeed in lust, and it has um, a, a kind of. There's a moment which uh, is is a little kind of uncomfortable for modern readers to read, where in a kind of Donald Trumpian way, he grabs her by the pussy, and it says very explicitly, quite literally, that, yeah, quite literally. But so we we see, but this is kind of, I think the medieval audience is meant to understand this as just just a kind of flirtation, right? He's he's communicating to her that that you know that he's in lust with her and um and he would like to make sweet love. But alongside the clerk, Alison is also um much adored by uh, a figure called Absalom, who's the parish clerk. And he's a, he's a kind of comic character. He he has this kind of wonderful hair that he takes great care of. I mean, we we kind of get a sense he's a bit of a dandy 
you know, his clothing is described in quite a lot of detail. Uh, he obviously takes a lot of care over his appearance. Um, he's concerned that he should smell delicious and and generally be um, an attractive proposition. And we should add at this point, he's extremely fastidious about bodily order, odors. Yes. Does not is. like unpleasant smells or right. so on. This so he's is always a, chewing on some licorice or something like that. So that is right, so the smell. Exactly. So this is a, this is an important part. So the clerk is uh, driven, not the parish clerk, the other clerk, who's called Nicholas, is is driven kind of mad with lust for the beautiful Alison who lives in his house. And so he decides that he he hatches this plan for how he's going to have his wicked way with Alison. So he over many days, pretends to be in this stupor and he stays in his room. And the carpenter is a little concerned and sends his servant to go and knock on the door and you see what's up. And eventually the clerk comes out, Nicholas comes out and he says, you know, I've I, I'm in possession of some some truly terrible knowledge, and the carpenter says, "Well, what is it? What's what's happened?" And he said, "You know, I have I've seen in my books, I have I've I've understood a prophecy that the second flood is coming, and we're all going to die." And of course, the carpenter is horrified by this, and and is particularly worried about Alison. That's kind of a, a moment. A sweet moment, yeah. Yeah, it's a sort of moment of tenderness. You know, his his first response is, "Oh, my my darling wife." But then the the clerk Nicholas says, uh, "Well, I, don't worry. I've got a brilliant. Um, I've got a brilliant ruse. We can escape the flood. But what we need to do is, on the night that the flood is coming, we need to climb inside these barrels that will hang from the ceiling." And when the water comes, we'll slice the ropes that hang the barrels from the ceiling, and then we'll each be able to float away on the flood water, and thus we will be saved and everybody else uh, will be killed. So the carpenter agrees to this plan, and indeed, um, one night they climb into the barrels, and there they wait until the carpenter is soundly asleep. At which point, uh, Alison and Nicholas get out and they climb down a little ladder and it says they make the business of mirth and solace until morning. So Nicholas and Alison are having a lovely time and Absalom, by chance, decides to go to Alison's window and he stands underneath and, and he says, oh, my honeycomb, my sweet Alison, my fair bird, my sweet cinnamon all wonderful and important and redolent imagery, which we'll get to later. Um, and he asks her to come to the window to give him a kiss. And Nicholas and Alison think that this is an excellent moment to play a trick on poor old Absalom. And so Alison presents her bum to the window, whereupon Absalom, and it is it says that the night is so dark, it is dark as pitch, it's pitch black, as pitch black as coal. And in the darkness, he goes to kiss what he thinks is Alison's face. And he kisses, well... Her behind. I mean, is it her... It's, it's her kind hole. of her vulva, yeah. isn't it? It's her vulva. Unless she has, yeah. <laughs> she has a hairy bum. <laughs> It's somewhere down there. He's definitely kissing. 
so okay so when i wrote about this for the new york review they they <laughs> the fact checker was like what's actually happening here and i wrote that he kissed her her suit vulva <laughs> but well because her it's it's very hard to understand the mechanics of it but i'm imagining he's beneath right so if she puts her bum out then and he's below yeah he's, he's below because he kneels down right he kneels down and then please god don't include this in the podcast <laughs> He kneels down and then he puts his face up. I mean, I, I've always wondered how do you miss the bump, like the butt cheeks, right? How do you miss but the it butt does, cheeks? It does say, and at the window, out she put her hole. So it's kind of unclear. But she has two holes. <laughs> but then it says he kissed her naked ass. Right? I mean, either way, the hair is below, right? Mm. And so Alison goes to put her bum in the window. And I think at this point, we should probably read the Middle English because the mechanics of what happens next are sometimes a little difficult to grasp. So let's go back to the Chaucer and we'll we'll really work out what's going on. So, this Absalon gan weep his moothfil dree. Dark as the nicht was as pitch or as the coal, and at the window oot she put here hole, and Absalon him fill no bet nay worse, but with his mouth he kissed her naked airs, full savourly, ere he were war of this. A back he stared, and thought it was amiss, for well he wist a woman hath no beard. He felt a thing all rough and long a haired. So I think we can probably translate that as something like this uh, Absalom. Uh, wiped his mouth so that it was dry. Dark was the night as pitch or or like coal. And Absalom, what happened to him was neither better nor worse. But with his mouth, he kissed her naked ass, full savourly, so with, with relish. And he thought it was amiss, for he knew that women have no beard. And he felt a thing all rough and long. Uh, long and long, sorry, or rough and long-haired. So clearly, Absalom is kissing some part of her, perhaps nether her region. buttocks. Her, yes, her nether region. Thank you, Irina. Um, and he is horrified by by her pubic hair, which is what he he can feel and and taste. Um, and so he realizes that a terrible trick has been played on him. So he runs off. And moments after, running away in disgust, he meets the village blacksmith who is working in his forge and he says that a terrible trick has been played on him. And so he grabs from the fire in the forge uh, a burning hot coulter, which is a part of a plow, the symbolism here. Um, and he then returns to Allison's window, whereupon he says up to the window, Alison, please, may I have another kiss? And this time, uh, Nicholas has got up in order to pee. And he decides that this would be an excellent moment for him too to play a trick on Absalom. And so he puts his bum to the window, whereupon Absalom, who has at this point got the burning hot coulter, and he, what does it exactly say? It just says it. He smoot, and amid the earth, he smoot. 
Okay, and at that point, Nicholas, amid the arse, he smote. So he smote him in the middle of the arse. Nicholas is obviously completely horrified and shouts, help, water, water, help, for God's sake, uh, which of course wakes up the carpenter who believes that indeed the flood has come. And then, of course, the carpenter takes his axe and cuts the rope that um, is holding him to the ceiling. Um, because there's no water below him, he falls really hard and he he's injured. And we're left with an injured carpenter, an injured Nicholas, um, and Alison, who's in a bit of trouble, except what they do, what she and Nicholas do, is convince all the neighbors that the carpenter has imagined the whole thing, that he's imagined um, that Noah's flood is coming, that he's lost his mind. And so in a sense, they gaslight him. And that's the end of the story. Which, and the final couplet I love, and Nicholas is scalded in the toot. This tale is dune, and God save Al the root. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's a funny story. I, I think part of what makes it so funny is how needlessly elaborate it all is, right? Um, because Nicholas first approaches Allison when her husband is out of town. So actually, they don't really have to do any of this. They could just wait until her husband is out of town again and and then have sex. None of it, none of this um, is necessary. So there's a there's a sort of delight in the complexity of the device, right? Of the trickery, which is also a delight in the complexity of the story. So I think that's part of the pleasure. But but what do you think, Mary? What's what's funny about this story? I mean, I just love I love all the symbolism of all the different elements. I love that that the weapon that Absalom uses in order to um, wreak his revenge is a part of a plow. And although the Middle English Dictionary doesn't have um, plow the verb as as meaning sexual intercourse, I think you know visually, you know a plow is this the, the particularly the coulter is this kind of very phallic part of the plow that that kind of goes into the soft earth, and so I think you know that the audience would have understood the resonance there. Um, I love you know the way in which. Chaucer is joking about all of these different holes, you know, the hole being put out of the hole of the window, um, the way in which he's setting up all of these amazing kind of spaces um, and the symbolism of all of those. Um, I think it's a complex, it's a kind of Rube Goldberg machine, the whole story, right? Because all of these completely unlikely things are, are set up. Um, it's like a domino, you know, dominoes or something like that. And then you're just waiting for for water, water, which kind of, which sets them all falling. Um, so there's that delight, but I you know I have to say, I love Absalom. I think he's my favorite character in, in, in the story. And he is sort of eternal because he's just, he's so fastidious, right? He's so obsessed. You could tell that he's someone who is uncomfortable with human bodies and with the smells and fluids of human bodies. And so it seems appropriate that he he sort of has this terrible trick played on him because you know he's the guy when he's going off to kiss as he hopes Allison 
um, you know, chews, has fresh herbs under his tongue in order to, to smell right, which doesn't seem to be so much for the other person, but because of his own disgust with, with mm. bodies. So you can't imagine him actually having sex. And afterwards, he seems to give it up altogether. Um, and there's, there's also this great bit earlier on when he's introduced where it says that he senses, because he's the parish clerk, so he has to do the yeah. sensing, um, that he kind of like senses the ladies of the town. And you have this kind of wonderful sense of him like sort of being delighted by them, but also wanting them to smell delicious as he yeah, kind of approaches yeah. them. And he's and he's kind of a showman too, right? He plays Herod in 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 yeah. the the village place. Or, you know, you get this idea of somebody who's very concerned with how he looks, um, constantly, you know, brushing his hair so that it fans out over his back. He's he's um he's good looking but probably in a kind of unpleasant way as you said he's a, he's a he's kind of dandy and then he's confronted with female sexuality with the female mm. body he thinks he wants it but he doesn't quite know what he's mm. going to get and if you really i mean it's hard to know exactly what he's kissing and that's part of the fun of it is that Chaucer makes you think about it and makes you think mm. wait which hole <laughs> you know <laughs> A woman has, has several. <laughs> um, but you also think about the fact that she she spent the night with Nicholas and she's going to have a certain perfume um, and other things. And he comes into contact with all of this all at once. And and of course, it's it's horrifying for him because he actually can't deal with, with the female body. Can't deal with the female body and also this presumably this very obvious evidence of the fact that she has been having a lovely time with Nicholas. Yeah. You might imagine. Um, it's that, that bit is also really interesting because the point about her pubic hair, I think is, is important because the description of Alison is very specific at the beginning. And we, we hear that she is a woman who, although she's married to a carpenter, she clearly breaches sumptuary legislation, which was this legislation that said that everybody must, in the Middle Ages, um, must dress according to their social station. So they shouldn't wear clothing that made them appear to be of a more elite social class than they actually were. You know, this incredible anxiety about, about social display and the visual aspects of social display. And uh, but it's clear that Alison is a woman who breaches sumptuary legislation. So it describes how she wears silks, which is uh, not allowed. And she has these kind of tasseled clothing. She wears silk on her headdress and silk in um, on her girdle. She's very, very richly dressed. And she's clearly wanting to appear aristocratic despite not being aristocratic. Now, there's been some quite interesting recent criticism saying that um, – there was something of a trend amongst aristocratic women in uh, medieval Europe to remove their pubic hair. We have a number of recipes from um, an extremely popular collection of texts called the Trotula, which have, there are three different recipes for pubic depilation that were aimed at women. And we have a number of texts which seem to equate um, women with lots of pubic hair with fertility and also importantly with low social station. So the idea that if you were really, really hairy, you had a lot of pubic hair, you were you were a kind of, you know, a member of the peasantry. And so there's this kind of wonderful joke here that, you know, maybe only part of Chaucer's audience would get, which I think is very interesting in itself, that Chaucer's kind of saying that although this is a woman who is 
very aristocratic on the outside. You know, she's wearing the silk. Underneath, she has this pubic hair. It's long pubic hair. And this is the true marker of her real social class and, by implication, a marker of her lustiness. And what I love is that that is set against Absalom's hair, which he so carefully kind of tends to. So, Mary, who are we mocking here? Who who's actually the butt of this joke? <laughs> that is a great question because I actually don't know the answer to that. And so often I reread this story and I think that I know who who is the real butt of the joke here. But actually, each time I read it, I I feel like I come to a different conclusion. Um, I mean, obviously, the carpenter at the beginning is set up as this figure of fun. You know, he's this this sort of bumbling figure. He's an idiot. How could he believe the clerk? Um, the clerk, Nicholas, is, we, you know, he's impliedly he's a bit of an intellectual snob. He has his books that he keeps on a kind of shelf above his head. Um, he's also sleazy, isn't he? He's, he's kind, kind of, of sleazy. sleazy. He looks down on the carpenter. He's obviously sleazy because of the way he grabs Alison by the pussy. Um, he, and and of course, we've talked about how Absalom is also a, a kind of figure of fun. You know, he he's clearly a, a ridiculous figure in some way. And, and Alison is herself mocked in the ways that I've sort of just described. She's very much, um, she's very much a male fantasy. And I think it is also really important to remember all the while that we are hearing the Miller himself speak. So we shouldn't think that this is Chaucer. This is Chaucer ventriloquizing through the the Miller, who, as we know, is drunk, right? So the kind of, the Miller's description of Alison is is a sort of strange confection of of male fantasy. You know, she's not really a real character. She's just kind of a a sequence of body parts in a well. Well, I I don't agree. I think she does have, have this interesting moment because when Nicholas grabs her, she basically, um, says she's going to cry for help, right? She 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 doesn't like it, <laughs> and she you know she she forces him to kind of pull back a little bit, and then he and then he he starts to sweet talk her, um, which she does like, and and she seems to then fall in line with 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 his wishes. But he doesn't get what he wants right away. He does have to woo her the way she wants, even though it's it's quite heavy handed. In that, even afterwards, he sort of pats her around the the loins and so on. You know, he's still very handsy, but she does pull back and says, "No, I'm going to cry rape if if you keep going like this." Um, so there is a sense in her that she she does what she wants ultimately. Mm. But then you see with the carpenter, for example, we were talking about how his immediate response when he's told that the flood is coming, you know, he immediately thinks of Alison and that's sort of charming. And then right at the end of the story, there's a sort of sense of kind of sadness really for him because he's become this kind of figure of fun in the village when actually it really is Nicholas who should be the the figure of fun, but it's the carpenter who's been kind of duped. But I also think that this is a kind of interesting meditation on Chaucer's part about the nature of power and the nature of authority and the fact that Nicholas is a privileged figure who is party to a kind of elite knowledge. He's able to leverage his education, his the knowledge he has in in the books that he owns, which are presumably you know, expensive items to own. And he's able to therefore trick the carpenter into 
taking the possession that that the carpenter loves the most, i.e., his wife. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a little troubling the way he he the carpenter describes his wife, but nonetheless, you know, it's the it's the ultimate trick. And I think that for Chaucer, this is a this is a reminder. I feel like the moral of the story is you shouldn't use your superior education to play tricks on those who are less educated and less privileged than you. And that seems to be the kind of the moral kernel in the story. And we know that, I mean, we have other kind of abusive student types in Chaucer, like the wife of Baths, Jenkin, um, exactly. who, who also hurts her. But it's really, it's really Alison who comes out unharmed in this, right? She's the mm. only one who's not hurt in some way. Uh, so can we say that she wins? Yeah, it's kind of interesting that she she's described as a weasel. And I, I kind of love this description because, you know, weasels are these sleek, uh, slinky, slender creatures. Um, and, and, you know, they, they're considered, they were considered in the, in the Middle Ages as quite um, kind of wily and cunning. Um, but also it was thought that weasels could conceive um, through the mouth or through the ear and give birth either through the mouth or the ear. And so they were kind of figures for the Virgin Mary. But it's kind of interesting also that she is compared to this small animal. You know, this is not, she, it's not like she's being compared to a lion or something. You know, this is a small animal that can be contained, but that also perhaps can kind of wriggle out of trouble. And that's, that, that seems to be what, what we take away from this, that she is able to sort of wriggle her way free and remains somehow unharmed. So Mary, what do we take away from this story? Don't put your butt out a window in the dark. Yeah. And don't use your superior education to dupe people who are less fortunate than you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Irina. If you enjoy hearing about medieval literature, you can listen to our full 12-episode series, Medieval Beginnings, right now as part of the LRB's Close Readings podcast subscription, where you'll also find the whole first series of Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones, looking at classical literature from Homer to Horace, and The Long and Short with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry on 19th and 20th century literature from Tennyson to Alice Oswald. And as well as all that, you'll be able to listen to the three new series running this year. There's On Satire with Claire Bucknell and Colin Burrow, which looks at satirical texts from Erasmus to Muriel Spark. Human Conditions with Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra, Brent Hayes Edwards and Adam Schatz, which looks at revolutionary texts of the 20th century. And the second series of Among the Ancients with Emily Wilson and Thomas Jones. You can listen to all of that with a close reading subscription. Sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or in other podcast apps. There are links for those below.